name's Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which, by the way, is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast, and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm here today with Alex Berenson, an award-winning novelist, a number one New York Times bestselling author, and a former New York Times reporter. His latest book, Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence, is his second nonfiction book. His debut novel, The Faithful Spy, based on his time reporting in Iraq, won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel. He's written a total of 12 novels and two nonfiction books. The Yale graduate, Alex currently lives in the Hudson Valley with his wife and children. So welcome, Alex. Thanks for coming on Moms No Time to Read Books. Sibby, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence, which is such an amazing service you're doing by collecting all this information and research about what us parents should know and what we need to inform our children. It's super important. So thanks for doing all that work. Well, thank you. I was, you know, I was a reporter for the New York Times and then I became a spy novelist and then I I had some children or my wife had the children. <laughs> um, you can take credit, it's all right. And you know, she really got me involved and interested in this topic because she's a psychiatrist, a forensic psychiatrist, which means she deals with the criminally mentally ill. And she, so many cases she saw, uh, cannabis use seemed to be a factor in the person's mental illness. And, um, you know, honestly, I didn't really believe her at first. As I explained in the book, I, you know, like everybody else, I heard about Reefer Madness, the movie, and I just assumed that, you know, cannabis really was pretty harmless. You know, I'd used it a few times growing up and didn't particularly like it, but didn't particularly care either way. And so... You know, this went back and forth between us for uh, for really a couple of years. And I was, you know, I'm embarrassed to say, mansplaining things probably that I knew nothing about. And finally, she got tired of me talking about this. You know, she's the one who has the fellowship at, you know, Columbia. And she's the one who has all the medical training. And she's the one who sees all these people. And she said, you know, you really should look at what the studies say. And I did. And I thought to myself, you know, this is a story that is as important as any story I ever worked on at the New York Times, and nobody knows about it. So it became Tell Your Children. So what should we tell our children? <laughs> you, should t- you should tell your children. Summarize this intense work of brilliant research into a couple sentences, please. Cannabis is not safer than alcohol. For adolescents, it's less safe. And certainly for adolescents in New York City, it's less safe because the number one risk of alcohol for adolescents really is, in- involves driving. Right? I mean, you can, you can certainly... You can, if you really want to, you can kill yourself drinking alcohol. There's no question. You can, you know, put yourself into liver failure. But really, for adolescents, the risk is drinking and driving, which is obviously not as big a risk in New York. For cannabis, the risks are less physical and more psychiatric. So cannabis is a neurotoxin. THC is a neurotoxin. And for vulnerable people, especially if they start using in their teens, it can not just impair memory or motivation or cognition, but it can actually produce psychosis. 
And psychosis is the medical term for a break from reality. It's, you know, hallucinations or delusions or severe paranoia. I mean, I, I think we all know that cannabis or anybody who's used it knows that cannabis can cause paranoia. You know, that, that happens so frequently that, you know, in states where it's legal, people will tell you, oh, this strain is less likely to make you paranoid. That it just, for many people, comes along with the high. But what people don't realize, because there's been a really aggressive and very successful marketing, and I would say propaganda campaign around this, is that the paranoia is a symbol of, some, or it's a symptom of something much more serious, which is, you know, psychosis. Now, not everybody who uses cannabis and not even a majority of people who use are going to suffer psychosis, but, but some people are. And the younger you start, the greater your risk. You know, 14 is better than 12, 16 is better than 14, 18 is better than 16. Really, this is not a drug people should be using before their 20s, if they're going to use it. And the other thing that parents need to know, this is true, even if you're only in your, I would say, you know, late 30s, but certainly if you're older than that, is that it is really true that the cannabis and THC products that are being used today are totally different than what you might have used as, a, as an adolescent or, you know, or in college or in your 20s. It is a different world. So cannabis in the 70s, most of it was 1% or 2% THC, and it had a measurable amount of CBD. And we can talk about what THC is and what CBD is. But the, the, the short version of that story is CBD is non-psychoactive, and it helps counteract the effects of THC. That's what the science basically says now. These days, if you go into a dispensary and you buy cannabis, it's likely to be 25% THC, no CBD. But even worse than that, a lot of people prefer to use what's called wax or shatter or edibles. This is all just pure THC or near pure THC that's been extracted from the plant. So wax and shatter are, and it does look like wax, is a it's this sort of semi-synthetic, gooey product that gets extracted from the plant that you smoke. It's basically just smoking THC. And this is one reason why people say this is a natural, it's a plant, it can't hurt you. I, I say, do you, do you know what people are actually using these days? And edibles are uh, obviously edible, and they get processed through your liver into a more psychoactive form of the drug. So, okay, this is a long background. But in two sentences, what I would say to a parent of an adolescent, three sentences, one don't think that this is safer than alcohol. It's not. It's not a good substitute for alcohol. Two, tell your child to delay using this. And even if you used it, understand that it's a different drug. And three, with the synthetics and with the edibles, know that the sort of classic signs of the, you know, the smell, the red eyes, they may not be there. So your child might be using a lot of THC. And you, you know, you're thinking, oh, I don't smell any pot in the house. No, you don't. But it doesn't mean that your child is not really hurting him or herself. Okay, now I'm totally terrified <laughs> as a mother who has 12-year-old kids. After doing all this research spanning 150 years of history and science, what do you see as the link between marijuana and mental illness? Because in Chapter 11, you say the link between marijuana and mental illness is controversial, but the link between marijuana and violence isn't. So how does violence and this psychosis like, explain. Okay, so, so there's sort of three issues here. On one, the science is unequivocal, and that is cannabis can produce transient psychotic episodes. There's just no question about that. If you give people THC in a lab, some of them will get psychotic, and they won't, necessarily, they won't stay psychotic forever. Okay. B, can cannabis produce permanent psychosis in people, permanent psychotic conditions in people who otherwise wouldn't have developed those? 
And I think we are pretty close to proving that in, in a tobacco-y lung cancer way. In other words, we're never going to prove it through a randomized trial because you couldn't do that. It's illegal to, to it's both un- illegal and unethical to test a drug to see if it harms people. So you have to look at this epidemiology and all this stuff. And we're pretty, we're pretty close on that, okay? There's a, there's a ton of evidence that has accumulated, especially in the last 10 years, that People who use, especially, again, especially if they're using when they're younger, especially if they're using a lot, really increase their risk for schizophrenia. So if you do the math, if you say, well, you're increasing your risk, well, if your risk goes from 1% to 5%, that means that if 100 people use, there are going to be four extra cases. So to me, increasing risk is the same as causing. And we can, we can argue about that. Okay, so, so, those, so that's A and B. C is the most controversial part of the book. And it's really the part that I talk the least about because it is complicated and I don't want the book to get, you know, pinned as Reefer Madness when there's so much else that's important to talk about here. Psychosis causes violence. This is, an, this is a fact, okay? It, is, it has been demonstrated in epidemiological study after epidemiological study. Unfortunately, our prisons and prisons all over the world are filled with people with schizophrenia. The best studies show that people who have schizophrenia are about 20 times as likely to commit homicide as healthy people. And, you know, just in New York, a few days ago, there was a terrible crime in Chinatown where a, a, a man who almost certainly was psychotic based on the, you know, the, what the police have been saying about him, beat four people to death with a metal pole. Before oh, homeless people. people. Yes, he was homeless. And it was, a, you know, it was random. It was incredibly aggressive. He was ranting and raving, according to the police. That all stinks of psychosis. Okay, psychosis causes violence. Unfortunately, advocates for the mentally ill hate talking about this. So what they say is, they say, People with mental illness are not more likely to be violent than people in the general population. That is true if you include people with sort of mild depression and mild anxiety. That's half the country. It's literally half the country. So so that hides the real risk. The real risk is in people with psychosis. Psychosis is a terrible illness, and it makes people do terrible things, unfortunately. Cannabis causes psychosis. Mm -hmm. It is reasonable to make a link between People becoming psychotic as a result of cannabis use and people becoming violent as a result of psychosis. But the link is actually closer than that. There is because the kind of psychosis that cannabis produces is so heavy on paranoia. And, you know, psychiatrists... They've done a lot of work about this issue because it's so important, right? You know, if you, one of the, if you think about modern society, one of the most important things a, as a modern society or as any society is the prevention of violence. Mm-hmm. So people spend a lot of time studying the causes of violence. And they, and they even spend time studying what specific delusions or, you know, paranoid ideation makes people violent who, who have severe mental illness. And it's clear that... Paranoia is a driver of severe violence. So you put all of this together and then you look at the individual cases and it becomes harder and harder to argue that, oh, this is nonsense. And, you know, just I get stoned and I sit around and, you know, I just the only thing I murdered is a bag of Doritos. Okay, true. You are not somebody who's consuming 100 milligrams of THC a day with an underlying mental illness. Okay, you don't have schizophrenia. You don't have bipolar disorder with psychosis. The violence is often around those, you know, unfortunately, it's around those people. And so this is a drug that can cause mental illness, it can cause paranoia, and it can worsen the kind of mental illness that's likely to produce violence 
in people with mental illness. You put all that together, you have a bad combination. Now, the cannabis lobby hates talking about this. They hate it because, well, they hate it for they hate it because they know that if people really understood this, it would be bad for efforts to legalize. Now, by the way, you can know this and say, okay, look, in one case in a thousand or one case in ten thousand, there's going to be something bad that happens to a regular user. I, and we could debate what the numbers might be, but you know. Is that like Richard Kirk? Yes, Richard Kirk. So that's a really interesting case because he didn't really have pre-existing mental illness, but he had a vulnerability. And this is one of the many stories you tell about specific people that make this makes this book more narrative, not just like a fact-based frenzy, but an yeah. actual like a, a, a very compelling narrative, including stories like Richard and his wife Christine and calling nine one one. So 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 yes. Yeah. So Richard Kirk is a guy. It's a very interesting case because he's somebody who had a transient episode of cannabis psychosis. I actually met Richard in you know in a prison in Colorado. Talk him for several hours. It's interesting to talk to somebody who's killed another human being because, you know, especially for a long conversation, I, I don't know what it would be like to be a lawyer who had to represent one of these people because it's like, it's normal, it's normal, it's normal. And then, and then he says something, he's like, you, you killed somebody. Like you, you shot your wife in the head with your child there. You're actually not normal. Like, like there is a, there's a, there's, you've done something that almost no one has done. Right. And, you know, and, but but, but if, going if, back to Richard. But if, but if Richard is normal, and let's just say anyone else out there who believes themselves to be normal, yes. and you have an episode of psychosis caused by a drug that you take once, yes. and you commit horrendous crimes, yes. and then you never take the drug again, are you not normal? So so it's a really good question, right? I, I, I So he has a family history of psychosis. I believe he has a brother who has schizophrenia. He had used cannabis in the past, and it tended to make him paranoid. Okay, so he has these sort of red flags, and he's a bit of a scammer, okay? He's an opiate addict. Not a, not a severe, at, not like he's shooting heroin, but he's got, he's got a problem with pills. Okay? Okay. He's got a back problem and a problem with pills. He's in mild withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, this is all in the book, but he, right. go, he, goes, he goes and he gets himself uh, a cannabis candy, an edible, which is a more dangerous form. Because once you, once you eat that candy, you are on the ride. You know, if, yeah. you, if, if you're smoking a joint— you get high, you get too high, maybe you just forget to smoke anymore, among other things. But, you know, you, you can titrate it is, the, is really the pharmaceutical term. With an edible, you're on the ride. And the joke about edibles is nothing's happening, nothing's happening. I'm going to take another one, nothing's happening. Take me to the emergency room. Right? Like, that's, that's really what—and that's what happened to Richard Kirk. So Richard Kirk is a guy, he's got family history of psychosis, he's got this— you know, he's had these issues with this drug on the rare occasions when he's used it. He's in mild opiate withdrawal. He takes an edible, and he gets extremely psychotic. By all accounts, he starts ranting and raving. The world is ending. He, he jumps out of a window onto his deck. He jumps back into the house. He's got three kids, mm -hmm. and he's got a gun in the house. And, you know, th does, this ha does this happen if he doesn't have a gun in the house? Probably not. Now, maybe he stabs his wife to death. Who knows? But, but he has a gun in the house. He gets the gun. His wife is calling 911. You know, these are nice middle-class people in Denver. The cops are not treating it as a priority. And then he walks up to his wife and he shoots her in the head. He just kills her. And, you know, he destroyed his life. He, he obviously killed her. He's never going to see his kids again, most likely. He's in jail for 30 years. And why did he do that? Well, if he hadn't been psychotic, he wouldn't have done that. Now, I'm not, listen, maybe he would have been violent in some other way, you know, and maybe, but he wouldn't have done that to her that night. And now he, you know, now he's sane again. Mm -hmm. So, so in some ways, 
So Richard, in some ways, is a, he's both a, he's both a good example of the dangers of cannabis and a bad example because his his what he did is kind of a one off rather than somebody who had sort of long pre existing mental illness that was worsened. But at the same time, you know, if we expose cannabis to millions of people, there's going to be more Richard Kirks, and there are more Richard Kirks out there. So so you know, it's in the book. You see these cases; they just pop up. And the media doesn't make a big deal out of it. You know, usually, in part because these are not, well, I mean, the Kirk case got a lot of attention because, again, this was a, you know, nice middle-class family. But even in that case, there's not a lot of mystery. There's rarely mystery to a psychosis crime because when you're out of your mind, you don't really usually spend a lot of time trying to escape or hide the crime or, you know, or, or I mean, maybe you run away, but but often sometimes people don't even do that. You know, the first case, the most terrible case of all the cases in the book, um, is the book is the story that opens the book mm-hmm. of Ryan Athiday, who is a, a, a you know a poor woman in Australia who has lots of stressors in her life. She's got she's got I think nine children by you know six or seven men. She's a she's a I don't think she's Aboriginal. I don't think that's the term. She's what's called a Torres Strait Islander, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a poor community. You know, it's a marginalized community in Australia, and she has all these problems, and she's smoking cannabis every day for more than a decade, and she's slowly losing her mind. And in the fall of 2014, she starts to recognize that, that things are going wrong, and she actually stops using. Now, unfortunately, that probably put her in withdrawal, and at this point, her illness, but she's in her mid-30s. This is not a woman who's ever been hospitalized before, I don't think. She's, you know, she's got depression, she's got stress, but by at some point, she became openly psychotic and started behaving in ways that the neighbors recognized was odd. She she took all the furniture out of the house. You know, it's, it's interesting you talk about the narrative in the book because the first draft of this book, I wrote it, I and my editor, I think, correctly said this was a mistake. He said, I wrote it from her point of view. So it's written from inside her head as she's losing her mind. Ooh. And my editor was like, this is just too much. Like, this book is going to be too controversial, too difficult to convince people to take it seriously. You cannot write it this way. That could way. be your next novel. The, the, I, well, I, it's Not hard. It's hard, hard ideas. You've written, like, 57 novels. Hard to live inside these people's heads. But, well, but, yes. but, 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 but Raina Thayday lost her mind. Mm-hmm. And one night, her two oldest kids and went out to and you know this is a, it's Christmas time in Australia it's summer it's hot it's northern Australia it's you know tropical you know all these kids living in this little house with these three ducks and two of the girls go out and they say they're going to come they they're going to the mall mm-hmm. um, this Cairns Australia it's you know it's a medium sized town northern Australia they don't come home she freaks out finally they come home that night she kills everyone in the house she kills seven of her children and her niece. She slaughters them. It's it's still not clear how she did this with nobody because because the neighbors didn't hear anything. She killed the ducks and then she killed the kids. And uh and then she went outside and she tried to kill herself although not very seriously and then she waited. And that was it. I mean she didn't and and you know eight children died and nobody knows. Nobody knows about this. And it's not just because it's Australia. It's because she's poor and she's marginalized and we don't want to deal with it. And we just want her to be in a mental hospital for the rest of her life. So a lot of your stories and a lot of the research and stuff in the book is somewhat unpopular. It's going against the tide of pot is the greatest thing ever. I can't even call it. I don't even call it the right thing. Weed, whatever you want to call it. Cannabis. Cannabis. Call it cannabis. It's a drug. I'm like. 
okay, cannabis is the coolest. There are all these cute purses coming out, like little carrying cases, Apple store like dispensaries everywhere. Like this is the thing. And if you're not doing it because like then you're like left out in a way. And your book is coming out saying, wait, 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 hold on a second. This is not like the joyride. This is not just like a harmless, well, sugar's not harmless. Uh, anyway, yes. you're, you're ha- you have a bit of an unpopular uh, message. More, more than a bit, yes. <laughs> so how is that affecting even the marketing of this book and how you feel? Do you feel even more compelled to get the message out? Do you feel silenced in part? Like, how do you I, how do you feel about it? I mean, I, I, I didn't expect this would become a quest and it would take over my life, but it has. And it is partly because of what you're talking about with the marketing. Look, if, if this drug were being legalized on the basis of, this is a recreational intoxicant, it's for adults, it's got dangers like alcohol, you know, pro- again, probably worse than alcohol in terms of the psychiatric harms, not as dangerous in terms of the physical harms. We know it's going to kill some people. You know, if you use too much of it and you're intoxicated on the street, we're going to arrest you. But we think we know a lot of people are using it and we don't want to, you know, be arresting, you know, eight times as many black people as white people for it. So we're going to legalize it. I wouldn't be in favor of that. I don't think it's a great idea. But that would be a totally intellectually honest conversation to have. This drug has been marketed and legalized under basically false pretenses as medicine. It is not medicine. It's being marketed to exactly the wrong people, to people with anxiety disorders, to people with depression, to people with insomnia. Those are exactly the people who should not be using cannabis regularly. You know, look, if I gave you, uh, you know, an eight ball of cocaine, you'd feel better for a few days. But cocaine's not an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a fifth of vodka might make you feel better for a week, but alcohol's not an antidepressant either. Using recreational drugs to treat psychiatric conditions is a big mistake. Mm -hmm. So I hate, I hate the way this is marketed, and I really hate the way it's marketed to moms. I really hate that. The statistics, and you know, this is one of the things that people hate about the book more than anything else, is that ranithide is not, unfortunately, a unique example. The statistics show that if you look at child deaths from abuse and neglect in the United States, and the United States has terribly high rates of child deaths, more than any other industrialized country by far. Okay. If you look at those deaths, and it's, it's the one kind of death that the states actually are supposed to really kind of do a root cause analysis. And some states are better at this than others. New York is actually not very good at it. Texas is very good at it. Florida is pretty good at it. Those states show that 30 to 40% of the deaths of children, and these are terrible cases, mm-hmm. come at the hands of people who are using cannabis at the time or who have serious problems with cannabis or both. That is more than alcohol by far. It's more than any other drug, including drugs like methamphetamine. Weirdly, actually, the opiates, opiates don't make people hurt their kids. May, I mean, sometimes they make people die or pass out, and then terrible things you know, happen to their kids when they, I mean, they're literally, you can find cases where people die and then their children die in a crib. It's, it's horrible. Okay. But cannabis, encouraging moms to use, or dads, but especially moms of young children to use cannabis is the worst idea in the world. Here's what cannabis does to you, okay? It it enhances your sensations. That's why people like it, right? It, it makes music sound better. You know, it makes people like to have sex on it because it makes sex more exciting. It makes food taste better. It enhances sensation, but it dulls emotion. In that way, it's kind of the opposite of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Alcohol, you know, it makes you emotional and weepy and happy. Cannabis just puts you in a corner feeling stuff yourself. It dissociates, right? Again, it's this classic stoner who doesn't want to move. Mm-hmm. It can make you paranoid, and it certainly makes you lazy. 
What do I know as the parent of three young children? Young children are hard. They're a ton of work. They and and you and you need to be emotionally connected to them to be aware of what they're what they need. Mm-hmm. A drug that has the particular sensa- uh, particular aspects of cannabis actually couldn't be a worse drug mm-hmm. for the parents of young children to use. And it infuriates me when I read these happy stories about moms using. I, I mean, I uh, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm not I, using. I, I prom- no, don't look at me. You got, you got me on I my promise. you got me on my horse about this, but I've read I've just read too well, many horrible cases. So, but okay, so as parents, you have three kids. I have four kids. Yes. They are growing up. Yes. What do we tell our kids about like they're gonna want to go try everything? This is like the okay, like do you go to a party? There's there what do you do? What do we say don't ever try it? Do we say try it, but here are the risks? Do we say you might go psychotic and murder your entire family? <laughs> Here's See, Alex's book. You know this uh, can happen. What do we? What do you? What are you I mean, going to say to your kids? What I think are you gonna I'm going to. I'm going to say these are these are things that you probably shouldn't use, and you and, and certainly you know some of them are so dangerous that you shouldn't use it even once. You know, I mean, I think I think you know I think trying cocaine once is a mistake yep. because there's just too much risk that you'll become addicted even if you use it once. You know, methamphetamine, same thing. You know, the opioids. Look, the opioids have some medical uses, right? If you're in severe pain, right. you know, but but, but, cannabis, but can, so cannabis is you know cannabis is more like alcohol, right? It's it's a dangerous drug. It's going to eat some people, but the risks you know on a population level are clearly lower than you know than than something like cocaine. So please don't do this until you're in your 20s. You only have one mind. It's hard to break, but if you break it, you're not going to get it back. And Look, I made a lot of mistakes growing up, and I, you know, I was lucky. I didn't. I never, you know, never got arrested. Never. But, but you know, you can't, you can't know. So be careful, and don't let your friends tell you what to do. I mean, the the number one thing, number one thing about this book, is like there are people who hate me and tell me I'm not cool, and I don't give a shit. Okay, I don't, I don't care whether I'm cool or not. This is, this people are dying because of this, and we're going to be honest about it, whether you like it or not. And I do think that's a real problem with them. So the media reception to this book has been very frustrating to me, in that a lot of places that I feel should have written reviews of it didn't write reviews. But you hadn't heard of this book, you know, when I when I contacted you, and you know, you're you're in the audience that should have heard of this book. And you know, this is a book that Simon and Schuster published. I was a reporter for the New York Times for ten years. People don't want to take it seriously. Now, in part, that's because the cannabis lobby has done such a good job with its message. But in part, it's just because there's all these middle-aged, it's middle-aged white guys in newsrooms who want to be cool. And I'm not going to say who it is, but I heard this interview uh, recently with someone, and he was talking about, you know, cannabis with somebody who was younger. And she said something to him about, you know, basically, do you use? She didn't exactly say it that way. And he giggled. Like, like, he, 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 and I thought to myself, you are an important person in American journalism. What are you doing? Like, why are you giggling about this? Like, like you're trying to prove you're cool to your to the person who works for you, who's half your age. There's much too much of that. You know, it's we almost like so you feel there's a peer pressure element to it, it, it even it, as middle aged people. Yeah, especially as, now that I'm middle aged, I understand there's nothing sadder than you know knowing that it doesn't end. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> that, that you're never going to be 22 again. You know? it's a, but you're not. It's time to be a grown-up. And, and sometimes I truly think that there's three kinds of people in the world. People who have children, who shouldn't have children, whether or not they do, and people who are children. And like those of us who are adults need to talk about this. And it doesn't mean we're going to convince people. But you just got to try. 
Well, I think if anyone was going to convince anyone, it would be with your book. You're really a brilliant writer, as I mentioned when you got here, and you make such a compelling case. It's hard not to listen to it. So I'm really feel very grateful that you wrote it. And I, for one, am taking it super seriously. And, you know, everybody else should too. And it's really important. And it's it's especially nice that you, you're you like this very successful novelist and you just took this on as a project. So it's, I don't know, somehow that makes it even nicer. <laughs> well, it's, it's nice for me because, my, you know, the books have done, my novels have done pretty well. And it turns out you can actually make a pretty good living if you write one best-selling novel a year. And so... I didn't need to do this. You know, people say I did this for the money. The truth is this book has sold less. I mean, even though it's on its fifth printing and, it, you know, it sold about 40,000 copies, you know, The Faithful Spy, which I hope you, you know, I hope you do read. I will. I, I'm I will giving read myself it. a plug here. Faithful um, Spy, beautiful red cover. Yes. Best-selling book. Yes. But so that book has sold, you know, more than a half million copies. So, the, you know, the, a successful novel, it sells a lot more uh, books generally than a, than a piece of nonfiction. And so I, I did. I had the opportunity to do this. And, you know, my wife is successful and makes a good living. And, and so, so I was able to do this. And, you know, it's always amusing to me when people say, oh, I'm in the pocket of the alcohol. I've never taken a dime from an alcohol company or a tobacco company or a cannabis company or, you know, or an opioid company. You know, it's not—that's not—, that's not I can be independent about this, and that feels good. Well, thank you. Do you have any parting advice? I know we're like out of time, and I had a thousand more questions for you. But having gone through all of these novels and this brilliant nonfiction work, advice to aspiring authors? Read. I, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure other people have said that. Read and write stuff that you believe in. You know, there's a very few people out there who can fake it, who, you know, who can, who can write novels that, they, that are just kind of, you know, they're doing it for money, basically. Uh, I can't do that. I have to believe in the story that I'm telling. And I think that's true of all good novels or, or good writers, fiction or not. I think if you're faking it, it will be obvious to the reader. Next time I need something really well-researched, I'm calling you. Well, I'm going to say, you do it. You write Sibia, it up for me. Sibia, I, will, I will be here. And, I, you know, and thank you for, for this. I mean, this is a real service that you're doing. Thank you. That's nice. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club. Bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com.